Now, do you have your Bibles? You will need them. And let me tell you on the front side that I have a question for you based on what seems like an awkward conversation that Jesus had with Peter. It begins in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 19. I won't read you the whole story because I just want you to see what Peter did at the end. In Matthew 19, a rich young man approaches Jesus with the most important question of all. He says to Jesus, what must I do to have eternal life? That's it. I was going to say that's the million dollar question. It's much more valuable than that. What must I do to have eternal life is the question. If life continues forever somewhere in some condition, what must I do to have eternal life? What can I do to live forever and enjoy it? And Jesus gives him this cryptic, never-before-heard answer, obey the law. Do what Moses commanded you. And the rich young man says, I've done, all. I've done it all. He's self-righteous. He claims to have obeyed the Ten Commandments. And Jesus said, well, there's just one thing left that you have to do. Go sell all of your belongings, give it to the poor, and come and follow me. And he walked away sad because he was rich. And the disciples are watching a young man that we're told in another gospel Jesus loved. He loved him for his question. He loved him in his lostness. And Jesus and the apostles watched that young man walk away from Jesus, walk away from eternal life. He got a clear answer to the question he asked. He just didn't like it. He rejected the answer because he quite literally did not want to hear it. What Jesus exposed in that man's heart is his own understanding of his righteousness was that it was already perfect, but what was actually exposed is this man loved money more than eternal life. He wanted his money more than he wanted to trust Jesus. And Jesus is watching with the apostles this young man walk away, and Peter asked a question. One reason I love Peter is he's always just a little bit out of line in his conversations with Christ. He asked the question you wish you could ask. Listen to it, Matthew 19, verse 27. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Did you hear the laughter kind of work through the crowd? Now, why is that? Because that's a really selfish question, isn't it? Peter was a commercial fisherman. It wasn't a prestigious job, but it was solid. He owned his own boat. He's a married man who's feeding and providing for his own family well and evidently has got a good bit of the nation on his back as well. He has a good, honorable, blue-collar job that makes a difference to the whole country. He's doing well. G Peter walks away from all of it to follow Jesus. His former life no longer exists. He is following Jesus around in, apparently, the brink of poverty all the time. And he says, hey, we've left it all. What's in it for us? Now, do you like the question? Do you think Peter was right to ask that question? Would you ask that question? 
Would you later today in prayer says, Jesus, I am willing to forsake all that I have to follow you. I'm just wondering what's in it for me. The awkward laughter tells me you probably wouldn't pray that to Jesus. Here's the real question. What do you expect Jesus to say? Wouldn't Jesus be right to say, Peter, you have me. Isn't that enough for you? That sound like something Jesus might say to you? Sounds good to me. If I were coaching the Son of God on what to say next, that might have been among my top suggestions. I want you to hear what he actually said. Peter said in reply, let me back up to verse 27, then Peter said in reply, see, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, in the new world when the Son of Man sits on, will sit on His glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. If you're unfamiliar with the passage, were you expecting that? Peter is pointed to the life to come, the new heavens and the new earth, the new creation, and he's told, I will someday rule, and you who have left everything behind will rule with me. The fisherman, according to this, the fisherman will someday be enthroned. And you think your countrymen appreciated you when you were giving, bringing fish into the market? Wait until you sit on a throne and judge the 12 tribes of Israel. You go, okay, pretty cool to be an original apostle. Look, he includes you too. Everyone. Here's a deep Bible insight, ready? Everyone means everyone. You have to go to a really good church to get that kind of biblical insight into the text. <laughs> you can look carefully in the Greek. Everyone means everyone. Listen. Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands, in other words, anyone who's ever left anything for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. I just want you to see this. Jesus does not reject the question. He does not chide Peter for it. He actually incentivizes it and says, Peter, it's even better than you've dared to dream. You're concerned about what's in it for you. Jesus doesn't give him the pious, righteous answer that I would have expected and I would have given. Isn't the relationship that we have good enough for you, Peter? Are you aware as I keep telling you that I'm on my way to die for your sins? Isn't that enough, you self-interested, selfish little man? Isn't that good enough for you? He doesn't say any of that. He says your reward is greater than anything you've ever imagined or seen in the scriptures. You will rule with me and everyone, 2,000 years of disciples of Jesus, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands, here's the key, for my name's sake. You didn't do it to impress people. You didn't do it because you thought you should. You did it for the sake of Jesus. Anything sacrificed for Jesus, that person will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. And then here at the end, we'll come back to this, but many who are first will be last and the last first. In other words, the rewards are going to surprise people. People who think they will be greatly rewarded 
will find themselves at the end. People who, pe people who others thought of no particular importance are going to be the greatest in the kingdom. You'll say at this point, if you've been attending for a few weeks, I thought we were in 2 Corinthians. We are. Because at the end of the sermon last week in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, Paul said that it was his goal and it should be our goal to please God because someday we will answer to him. And today, for I think the fourth time in my 18 years here with you as, as pastor, I want to open up a doctrinal idea. Because what Paul is talking about is something the New Testament calls the judgment seat of Christ. And specifically, what Paul is going to teach us this morning in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 3 and 2 Corinthians 5 are woven together. They're two letters written to the same church, but we have to read them kind of in parallel to get what Paul is saying. What Paul's going to talk to us about is something that pastors and Bible teachers are reluctant to mention, and for good reason. Paul is going to teach us about rewards in heaven. And for all kinds of reasons, some biblical and understandable, some culturally conditioned where we've been told if you ever want a reward of any kind, that in itself is illegitimate. We don't even want to think about being rewarded in heaven. And there's a good reason for that. Pastors, including the guy talking to you, are understandably very concerned if I start talking to people about what the Bible plainly teaches all through Scripture about God rewarding believers in the new heaven and the new earth, if I start talking about rewards in heaven, people are going to make the common, fatal, destructive mistake that they have to earn their salvation, and I'm going to have a bunch of non-Christian heretics in my church. And I want you to understand something very clearly at the outset. As I'm about to show you, salvation is entirely at the expense of God himself. It is through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus in your place, which you did not ask for, which you did not know you needed, which you would not have wanted unless God saw your need first. It's entirely by grace. Salvation is a gift purchased entirely at God's expense. That is the most foundational truth you need to hear this morning. Nothing I tell you about rewards in heaven in any way contradicts the singular, amazing, God-given, God-blessed idea that salvation is entirely on Christ alone. Look with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And I will explain to you why Paul wrote this first and then reminded them in the second letter that they should live well because someday they were going to answer to God. Here's the context. As I've been telling you for weeks, the first Corinthian church would be a tough church to pastor. If you were poor or needy in the church, it would be a tough place to be. They're divisive, they're pretentious, they're litigious, they're suing each other. One guy is sleeping with apparently his stepmother, and the rest of the church, rather than condemn it and deal with him, seems to be celebrating it as part of his birthright, since God forgives everything. Let's give him a lot to forgive. The church is a mess. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul's telling them how childish they are, and one of the evidences that they're being very childish is they form fan clubs around preachers. 
And one group in the church says, I love Apollos. Nah, Apollos is okay. Paul, remember, Paul's the guy that brought us the gospel in the first place. Nobody has Paul's depth. Nobody has Paul's clarity. And Paul says, listen, we're just fellow workers, Apollos and I. We don't matter. Here's a little aside. Sometimes Christians form little fan clubs around their favorite preacher. That might indicate immaturity rather than depth and maturity on your part. Oh, no, I like this guy. You don't like this guy? Oh, you're not as mature as I am. You don't have the intellectual capacity to understand the depth of preacher A. I just like the way preacher B says, nah, nah, childish, milk. You want meat, preacher A can get you. That's what's going on in 1 Corinthians. And Paul's telling them your fandom actually indicates your immaturity. Verse 5, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. We're just working together. Go down to verse 10. According to the grace of God given to me like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Don't miss this. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So, first biblical truth, if you don't hear anything else I say today, get this. This is completely unrelated to your ability to earn rewards in heaven someday. That comes later. It's very important, which is why I'm teaching it for the fourth time in 18 years, because some things bear repeating. And if you can get a hold of what Paul is actually promising you here, it will actually change the way you act day to day for the rest of your life. But please, first, get this. Our salvation depends on Christ alone. Verse 11, no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. The foundation comes first and matters most. When this building was built sometime in, the, sometime in the 70s, they put a solid foundation beneath it. If we were on a different foundation, we would be in another building. The only foundation that sustains the building you're sitting in is the one right here. Christ is irreplaceable. There is no other foundation. The role of anyone sharing the gospel with anyone else is to put the foundation of Jesus firmly beneath their feet, and that entirely depends on Jesus. You have nothing to do with it. It's entirely at God's expense. Ephesians 2.8 says so. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. Let's move through this slowly. Because if you're still trying to figure God out, this is the most important part of the message for you. If you're not entirely sure that your sins have been forgiven and you're on your way to heaven, this is what you need to hear. Everything else is secondary. Listen. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's the grace of God and your trust in Him being gracious to you, that's what saves you. If that wasn't clear enough, Paul repeats it. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. If that wasn't clear enough, he says it again another way. Not a result of work so that no one may boast. Here's a simple way to understand it. How much would you expect for a gift someone gave? How much would you expect to pay for a gift I gave you? Nothing. 
If you pay five bucks for a $50 Bible, that's a bargain, but not a gift. Salvation's not a bargain. It's not that you put in your 10% and God covers the rest. No, by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So, salvation is God's gift to us. Be very clear about that. That doesn't change in view of the rewards in heaven that Peter asked about, that Jesus affirmed, and that Paul is now going to teach us about. But Paul doesn't stop teaching there. Now that the foundation of the salvation of Christ is firmly beneath the Ephesians' feet, and they remember that their standing with God, their forgiveness, their salvation, their enjoyment of eternal life is entirely God's doing and is entirely at God's expense, Paul goes on, verse 10, for we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good, what? works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. To put this very simply, good works are our responsibility as Christians toward God once He saves us. The foundation is laid. There can be no other. The foundation is Jesus. But Paul says everyone should be careful how they build on that foundation. Your salvation is by the grace of God. It is not your doing. You can't earn it. No one can brag in heaven saying, I got here because I was good enough for you, God. And the same, have the same character, the same goodness that you do. You and I are very much alike. There's nothing you need to forgive me from because I'm just like you. Not one person in heaven like that. Christ alone, the foundation. But... We choose, number two, how to build on that foundation. Look back in 1 Corinthians 3. Verse 10, according to the grace of God given to me like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is, what's it say there? Building on it. Let each one, this is a word for you. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now comes the building. Number two, we choose how to build on that foundation. Here are your construction materials. Paul's going to list six things. See if you can see what is alike and what is different in the list of building materials you can choose to build on the foundation of Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day, capitalized because it's judgment day, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each has done. Zero in on verse 12 with me. Six materials are mentioned. Which of those would you like to have? Gold, silver, and precious stones. That's one group. What's the other group? Wood, hay, and straw. Here's the deal. I say to you, listen, I've got a dump truck full of stuff I'd love to deliver. 
I've got a dump truck full of straw and hay for you. What time can you take delivery? What would you say? No, thank you. Why would you do that? I don't need that. What if I said, we've got a dump truck full of gold and diamonds for you, and I'm wondering what time you can be home? Anytime. Anytime. Absolutely right. I'll get in the truck with you. We'll go together. Make sure it all fits. These are all word pictures. And I'm so grateful that Paul wrote so much of his letters in word pictures because it helps communicate through vision something that will someday have not only an earthly impact, but an eternal impact on your eternal life and how much you enjoy it. Let me explain. Our choices in this life, the choices you've made so far this year on this day of May, You've had these months in 2023, every choice you've ever made since you became a Christian has either been the kind of thing that is gold, silver, or precious stones, or has been the kind of thing, the kind of choices that can be described as wood, hay, and straw. What's the difference? One burns, the other doesn't. Our choices lead to things that are valuable and last forever. That's the first list, or things that are of no importance and are quickly destroyed. I don't know if you've seen these sad pictures when someone's house burns down. They're standing there looking at the ashes. Everything that could be burned did burn. But I once saw a video of someone brushing the dirt and the ashes and the embers off a safe that was in the house when it burned down. Inside the safe were gold coins and jewels. Now, that person watching their house burn down is not going to be thrilled because they are going to suffer a great amount of loss. But if you've got gold coins while your house burns down, you're not worried about them. That's actually all you're going to have left. Your clothing, gone. Your furniture, gone. Your precious TV set, exploded, melted into nothing. But if you were fortunate to have gold and diamonds inside the house, you know that that's what you're going to start rebuilding with. So it is with our life. See if you can follow words picture, Paul's word picture. When you are saved, God puts beneath you the secure foundation of the grace and the person of His Son, Jesus Christ. That foundation is not going anywhere. The foundation is solid. You've got a firm footing to build anything you please from that day forward. But from the moment you're saved until God calls you home or returns for you, you've been making all manner of choices. And some of the choices have been worthless. The things you've chosen to do, the ways you've chosen to think, the things you've chosen to give or keep for yourself, the way we've chosen to treat other people, some of those things are precious and eternal and pleasing to God, and those will be our reward. Others are going to be completely useless. They were useless the minute we did it. It will not last in eternity. And our enemies, if I may, are going to be sin and trivialities. Sin is your actual disobedience to God where God tells you not to lie and you choose to. God tells you to be loving and faithful and kind and instead you choose to betray somebody and hurt them. Obviously, those things are not going to matter in eternity. All they're going to do is do some harm on earth. 
But I think in the 21st century with these blessed cell phones we all carry in our pockets, I wonder how much of our life will be wasted and how much reward will be lost, not because of gross sin, but because we gave our lives and our attention to things that simply didn't matter. Just pure triviality, just pure entertainment, gone as soon as it came. And the third and sobering warning that Paul has for me here, number three, is this. God will someday reveal the worth of everything that we do. Go back with me to 1 Corinthians 3, please. Verse 11. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. For the day will disclose it. In other words, reveal it. Because it will be revealed by the fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each has done. Fire is a common word picture for the presence and the holiness of God. In other words, you've been building on the foundation of Jesus from the moment you got saved, and someday God will call you to account. And His holiness, His perfect knowledge of everything you did and all of your motives are going to reveal to you, to Him, and to anyone watching what those things were worth. And in that moment, the truth of what your life actually counted for, not your salvation, but what your life actually counted for will be revealed, and there will be some surprises. Each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive, what's it say there? A reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer what? Loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Why are we on this topic? Because Paul told us last week this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Yes, we are of good courage. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim. What's it say there? Wherever we are, we want to please God. Why, Paul? Read verse 10 with me. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Understand the word picture of the judgment seat of Christ. That's drawn right out of Paul's own world in the first century. The judgment seat was a place where performance was evaluated and awards given. It wasn't a place of condemnation. It was a place of awards being distributed. But depending on how each had performed, how each had worked, there would be elation in some and sorrow and loss in others. You ever see the Olympic podium and notice sometimes that all three athletes on the podium are overjoyed? But sometimes if you look very carefully when they zoom in on the silver medalist, you see sorrow. The place I have most dramatically seen that is when an athlete in a race to show off did a little flourish in trying to taunt her opponent stumbled and lost gold. You're second best in the world. Shouldn't this be a moan of joy? 
an award was most definitely presented. That silver medal is valuable. It identifies one of the best athletes to ever live. But that silver medal for that female athlete will haunt her forever because a foolish, self-centered choice in a split second cost her what should have been. The judgment seat of Christ, to be very clear, is not God judging believer, is God judging believers' works, not their sins. When you appear as a Christian at the judgment seat of Christ, only Christians will be there. Salvation is not going to be questioned. Salvation has already been secured. You would not be at the awards ceremony if Jesus hadn't brought you there already. You are saved and as saved as you're ever going to be because the foundation is secure beneath your feet. But all the things that you have done from the moment Jesus saved you and put the foundation of his life beneath you, those things are being questioned. Those things are being evaluated. Those things are being exposed. Some are being exposed as eternally important and truly godly that help fill up heaven and please God in glory. Others are going to be exposed as good as they looked on earth, as self-centered performance, as self-interest. What looked like righteousness was actually a bunch of foolishness, and those things will be burned up before the holiness of God, and that person will suffer loss, though they themselves will be saved as if by fire. To put it in other, word, in other words, in legal terms, the judgment seat of Christ is an evaluation, not a sentencing. For those of you familiar with the criminal justice system, and I know some of you have been, if you've ever had to appear at a sentencing, your guilt has already been determined. The only thing the judge is going to decide at that moment is how long your punishment is going to be. The judgment seat of Christ is not a sentencing. Only the saved will there. From there, God will comfort everyone, wipe away every tear, as it says in the book of Revelation. But in this moment, the life that you've lived for Christ is going to be evaluated to be crystal clear, because I don't want any of you going home to work hard to earn your salvation. You'll never make it. Jesus alone can save you. It's His grace dying for you on the cross. It's His grace rising from the dead to give you eternal life. That and that alone can and will save you. But from the moment you trust Him and become His disciple, you better believe someday He will evaluate everything you did once you had knowledge of Him. There is no condemnation at the judgment seat of Christ. Romans chapter 8 verse 1 says, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who were in Christ Jesus. But look carefully at verse 15 again. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. In other words, what Paul is telling me here is simply this. Our reward is what remains after God's evaluation. Everything else that does not remain, that does not survive God's holy vision is going to be consumed and lost. I'm a simple person who thinks in pictures, so let me give you the word picture that appeared in my mind when I first started studying this many years ago. When you come to Christ, it's as if God put the foundation of His Son beneath your life. 
That foundation is solid and indestructible. It's not going anywhere. You now have a place to live and build securely. You're safe. And from the moment you trust Christ, you start building. Every day you have choices. How are you going to spend your time? How are you going to treat people? When people offend you, how are you going to react? If you're going to have kids, how are you going to raise them? If you have a job, how are you going to do it? When your boss is unfair, how are you going to respond to him? You're going to have a chance to build friendships, will you? What kind of friendships will they be? Jesus loves the church, it says in Ephesians, and gave himself for it. Will you be part of a church? If you're in a church, what kind of church member will you be? Will you be a contributor or will you be a consumer? When life hits you hard, are you going to be a complainer or are you going to be the kind of person who finds gratitude and reasons for positivity and reasons for further adventures with people who even those sometimes who hurt you and deeper trust in God? How are you going to live the life that Jesus died to give you? Assuming you're put your saving faith in Christ when you're 10 years old and God gives you 80 more years to live. You live all the way to the glorious age of 90. How many years have you had to build? 80 years of life. You were saved at 10. You died at 90. You had 80 years of choices. And all this while, on this solid, secure foundation you've been building. Sometimes it's gold and silver and precious stones. Other times it's wood and hay and straw. But it's all painted and stuccoed and beautiful, and honestly, nobody can tell the difference. And then one day, here's my simple childlike word picture. At the judgment seat of Christ, the holy knowledge of God will place your house on a conveyor belt, which will slowly take your house rolling into a consuming furnace. And there the house will stop to be tested, as Paul says, by fire. And then the belt will start up again, and something will make it out of the furnace. What you keep is what remains. That is your reward. That may mean that you thought you were building, and everybody saw your life and saw this beautiful four-story masterpiece. But the furnace revealed that the only thing that was solidly built was one wall and one door. Congratulations, that's your reward. Everything else, Paul says, if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved. That has deep implications for everyone who names Christ and tries to serve him. Jesus warned that some who are thought to be last will be first, and those who were first will be last. What does that mean? It may mean, for instance, that guys like me, who preach in public, who are vocational ministers who have salary and benefits from preaching Christ are actually going to be very small in the kingdom because we did it for ourselves. And we love the lights and we love the mic. Remember Jesus' warnings about not being the kind of person who prayed in public so that other people will see you and praise you? The warning is not never pray in public. Jesus prayed in public all the time. I've prayed in public this morning. Was that, was my public prayer in your presence, was that wood or was that gold? God knows. Because here's how that works. I might have been praying, thinking to myself, I hope they appreciate what a deep man of prayer I am. 
Not every pastor can pray like this. I hope they get it. (laughs) If you go back and check the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, if you pray to be seen in public by others, that is your reward. Bruce, they thought you were awesome. Congratulations, that's your reward. Nothing from God. It didn't count. It was wood, it was hay, it was straw. You never know what people are doing because you can't really see the motives. You can see that it's a good thing, but you don't understand always why they did it. What that might mean as well on this campus is that the single mom who works two jobs and somehow gets here at church at 8 o'clock in the morning to serve in Sunday school before attending church with her kids at 9.30, who won't get home after feeding them until noon or 12.30, and will rest just a little bit before starting her day all over again at 5.30 in the morning, doing her best with little encouragement and no paternal support to raise godly Christians, it very well may be that she's building with much more gold and silver and precious stones than I am. God knows all the truth of it. Someday the house of that single mom will be put through the fire. Someday the house that every pastor has publicly built will also be put through the fire and God's knowledge will reveal what each one did and why they did it and what remains is the reward. Nothing else, nothing more. So you need to be careful, as Paul tells us, how to build. Two quick questions because I know there are objections to this kind of thinking. We've been so culturally conditioned not to believe anything like this. Number one, is it right to be motivated by rewards? Yes, it absolutely is. They are God's idea and we are told by Jesus to store rewards up in heaven. Matthew chapter 6, look, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Let's study the Bible together. There's two instructions in these short verses. What's the first one? Don't pile it up here. It's permanently at risk. What's the second instruction? Pile it up in heaven. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moss nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. You're not only told that you can earn rewards, Jesus explicitly told you to get to it. Randy Alcorn says you can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. It was Randy Alcorn who used the line for the first time that I told you last week that we want to live for the line, not for the dot. We don't want to live for right here, right now. We want to live for things that will matter forever. Here's a second question. And very understandable. Will I be unable to enjoy heaven because I've lost some rewards? In other words, am I going to be like that silver medalist who never wants to see the medal again because the judgment seat of Christ revealed to me that my life, which was publicly for Christ, was actually enormously self-centered? To put it plainly, am I going to be chronically bummed? Am I going to be eternally disappointed? that I didn't get my full reward. No. The end of the book says that God will wipe away every tear. It is unimaginable and unmentioned in Scripture that anyone in heaven is less than gloriously happen every moment they're there. But you will catch this. This is is a little bit of a mind bender, but it's absolutely true. 
You will increase your capacity for worship, service, and enjoyment in heaven if you obey God right now. 2 John chapter 1, verse 8 says, Watch out that you do not lose what you have worked for, but that you may be rewarded. What's that word? Fully. Salvation is a gift. The rewards that you receive from God from the moment He graciously saved you, yes, those are empowered by His grace. You can't do a single good work without Him. But God, in His goodness, in His generosity, chooses to reward you every time you obey Him. And how is it possible... If I will suffer loss at the judgment seat of Christ, how is it possible that I won't forever be bummed when I see the losses? Well, it's like this. I've been to a few music concerts to hear the best musicians in the culture, people who fill up stadiums. And when I attend those concerts with friends who also play music, they get way more out of it than I do. Because they're watching a guy play the guitar that is an alien in his talent. And my friend who's been playing guitar for 30 years has a much deeper appreciation for the artistry on display because I've never even tried it. If I told you the world record in the marathon, you would say, oh, that's pretty fast. But you know who would appreciate it much more? Serious runners. People who have tried to run the very best that their bodies will produce are in much greater awe than couch potatoes. <laughs> men, who have, men and women who have ever tried and strived to play basketball well are in much deeper appreciation for LeBron or for Kobe because they know how incredibly hard it is what they do. In other words, your obedience for God here cultivates enjoyment for Him later put it in really simple practical terms, though we will all be saved and no one will be saved more than anyone else, I think the Apostle Paul will always appreciate Jesus more than I do. Not because Jesus won't be fully available to both of us in heaven, but because Paul sacrificed so much while he was still on earth to know Christ. You have a capacity, you have an ability in the time you have left to cultivate your capacity to enjoy God. Here's the final question. Christian, do you want to be a water pail or a swimming pool? You'll be perfectly satisfied. No one will say, I would like a little more. No, you'll have all of God. The question right here, right now, is whether He will have all of you and you will enjoy the fullness of your reward.